Welcome to episode 202 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and joining me is James R. Ben to talk about The Red Horse, the latest installment in his Billy Boyle series of World War II mysteries. Welcome to the podcast, Jim, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Nancy. Wow. Can, can this really be the 15th Billy Boyle? <laughs> it's, it's funny. You could say, oh, time flies, but it seems as though Billy has been a constant in my reading life, meaning it's hard to remember time when I wasn't either waiting for a new Billy Boyle, mm-hmm. pacing myself while I read the book, basking in the aftermath, wash and repeat, waiting for the next one. <laughs> so has any other loyal reader said as much? Um, it's funny. Uh, there's two things that are, are pretty common. One is when September is drawing close, it's I can't wait, I can't wait. And then around the middle of September, when's the next one coming? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's great to have that loyal core of readers who just, you know, can't wait every year and, and then start bugging me for the, for the next one. Um, and it's funny, the the farther I go into the series, the more often I get the question, well, how are you going to keep this going? You know, we're almost at the end of the war. Are you going to run out of time? But the more I write, the more storylines I see. And there's just almost no end to the places we can take, Billy, um, even right up to the end of the war. Um, so people do get nervous. Uh, but I always remind them, you know, I take this thing slow. Um, each book really takes up just a few days after the last book. Uh, and not by any uh, plan, but each story takes about a week, covers a week to 10 days in time, for the most part. Um, so there's a lot of uh, temporal territory still left to explore. And of course, um, you have an advantage. I've been talking to a number of writers. Uh, it's funny how much time people seem to have right now. Uh <laughs> That uh, you have an advantage in that you have firmly set your series in a time in which there may be war and V1 and V2 bombs and all sorts of, but there is no pandemic. So mm-hmm. you don't have to face the, the sort of situation of how am I going to work in this worldwide catastrophe uh, that's life-changing into my work. Mm-hmm. So, well, it, it's funny. I've been uh, realizing that the lockdown mode we've been in is really pretty close to my preferred lifestyle. Anyway, you know, I don't really want to go anywhere. I don't want to bother to do too many things. Um, so, I've found this to be a very productive period. I actually finished the book I have to turn in in October very early uh, and wrote a whole separate book, just finished that, um, a YA novel uh, set during um, the uh, 1943 in Denmark with the uh, escape of the Jews from that country. Um, and the Germans tried to round them up. Um, so I really enjoy having the escape. To, I can go back to this world at war uh, and sort of have a little uh, mental vacation from the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I, I can't. I could not bear to write it into a novel, a modern day novel. It's just bad enough to have to live it. 
Well, I've heard, uh, I've heard that from a couple of writers. T. Jefferson Parker and Denise Mina both said that this was a very productive period. Uh, I've also uh, talked to other writers, not necessarily mystery writers, um, and I include myself in this um, uh, bunch that it, I find myself so distracted by what's going on that even though it's my preferred lifestyle and this is what I do, you know, sort of uh, stay, you know, stay home, stay safe is sort of the lifestyle of writers, um, that it's, it's a little different for me. So I, I'm, I applaud you because, first of all, it's, uh, World War II is a very interesting place to uh, go to to escape the pandemic. Uh, but that aside... <laughs> Oh, we're glad but you, you can't do. Politics. <laughs> uh, the, it's it's really uh, sometimes challenging to be writing about really the fight against fascism in the 1940s and watching our daily politics. So that I think is more of a distraction for me because it's so uh, disheartening to see pictures of people marching under a Nazi banner in our streets and then writing about the war to to rid the world of that evil. It's, it's, uh, well, you anticipate, you anticipate a question that I, I asked you last year and that I, I had further down in my list. But uh, I, So I asked you this last year, and I think it should be asked again because you, you brought it up. Why do you think it's so important to keep the stories about World War II alive and in the consciousness of readers, even in the guise of a mystery? Uh, mm-hmm. Why do you? Well, it, it, it may, go ahead. No, I was going to say it is the great mystery. Why did this happen? Why did it happen in Germany? Uh, why did the world let it happen? What does that say about us as human beings? Um, I just saw on Twitter somebody posted um, pictures from uh, uh, pre-war Germany and the adoring crowds cheering Hitler. And, you know, everybody knew what he was all about. So how did that happen? Uh, and it is not quite so much of a mystery anymore because we can look around us and see how it happened. And I think it's an education for those who might not know history, but um, might need to learn about the parallels between that time and our time. On that cheery note, let's let's talk yeah. about the book. Uh, Last and year we won. We won. We won. Okay. We won. So that's that's true. Um, last year, when Hellstruck Twelve ended, uh, Billy and Kaz, who is uh, his cohort, uh, they were in a bad way. Their mission had been mostly successful in that they had made sure the liberation of Paris went in a way that favored the Allies. And I say mostly because Diana, Billy's love, and a British spy and the special operations executive was captured by the Gestapo. Kaz, though, who had a bad heart, had a heart attack. And Billy had a psychotic break brought on by amphetamines. And they both ended up in a special British hospital for spies. And that really intrigued me. We talked about it a little bit last year. And then after we talked, I started reading. They existed. There was one in Scotland that was um, quite, I guess you would say, infamous. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the research that you did for for that? And yes, uh, what's fascinating about that is really uh, 
a whole backstory about George Markstein. And I don't know if you ever uh, watched the uh, British series, The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan. I did. Yeah. So if you remember the opening scenes, the opening credits, it shows him bursting into an office and handing in his resignation. And the man he gives it to is George Markstein, who was a writer and co-producer with him of The Prisoner. And Markstein really based The Prisoner on Inverlara Lodge, the, the, the uh, uh, SOE facility in Scotland. And uh, it was called the Number 6 Special Workshop School. And that's why Patrick McGowan's character was named Number 6. So Markstein, uh, he then wrote a novel uh, in the 50s uh, based on Inverlara Lodge. And it was actually, it was infamous, but it was really a nice place because the agents who were sent there were all told, well, you need some more schooling. So we're going to send you to the special school in Scotland. And it was an old lodge, a manor house, um, plenty of alcohol, uh, plenty of books to read, um, and nothing to do. And it was for agents who were deemed too much of a security risk to be let out into the public. Um, some of them had been on missions and found out too much. Others were, it was determined that they, they couldn't uh, stand up to the stress, but they had already been briefed on, on their activities. So it was sort of a, it was, well, Mark Steen's book was called The Cooler, and that's an apt description. It was a place to just stash them. Uh, so I expanded that to a, a hospital setting, um, figuring that there would be a lot of agents who would have wounds of uh, physical and, and mental, um, and they would need a place to stash them. So that's where Billy and Kaz are both sent. Um, and it's hard to say much more about this book because of all the, the novels I've written, almost everything would be a spoiler to talk about. Exactly. But yeah. I, do have, I do have another question because yeah. it's something that's near and dear to my heart. My grandfather, I think I told you this was uh, D-Day plus one mm -hmm. at, uh, I, I, am, I think it was at Omaha Beach, set up the medical and surgical facility there, the, the field hospital. Uh, and I found out actually recently that he was actually promoted to colonel because of this, oh. because of his work. You know, Kaz has a heart condition, and he has a he has a consultation with a heart specialist at this hospital, and it, it got me to thinking how war, as awful as it is, frequently forwards uh, medicine and surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, it did it in the American Civil War. Uh, it certainly uh, did it in World War I and mm -hmm. in World War II. And so I found that uh, I wanted to, first of all, thank you for doing that. Uh, and, and then I wanted to ask you if one of the surgeons was based on Michael DeBakey, because he actually perfected uh, something along the lines of what you were talking about in World War II, although no, I think not, he not, did it, it stateside. based on DeBakey, but... Uh... Dr. Dwight, Dwight Harkin the, is, is a real person, and he was one of the, he was actually the, the forerunner of heart surgery. Um, he did some of the very first procedures. He trained Michael Tabeke. And uh, reading his autobiography, um, I, there was a line, something like, uh, at one point, I was the only heart surgeon in the world. 
Then a few years later, I knew the three other heart surgeons in the world, and I trained them all. So this fellow was really ahead of his time, and I was astounded at the um, almost superstitious belief in the medical community that, that you should not touch the human heart. Uh, the doctors really believed that if you touch the human heart, something something horrible would happen, and nobody ever knew what it was. But there was a real uh, firm belief that it was uh, uh, to be left alone. And uh, Dr. Harkin was presented with uh, cases um, from Normandy uh, where bits of shrapnel were floating around in the bloodstream of these soldiers. And if they went into the heart, it, it could certainly kill them. So he perfected a procedure to pluck tiny pieces of shrapnel out of the human heart. Uh, he had been actually fired uh, in the Mediterranean theater uh, by the, the head of medical services there because he did not believe in doing any surgery on the human heart. But um, Harkin persevered and saved hundreds of, of uh, soldiers from, you know, deaths that could have happened a year, years after the war. We can talk. There are things. I, I, you're absolutely right. It is hard to talk about the story of this book without introducing any spoilers. But I do have a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, each of your stories <clears throat> about Billy Boyle, and we've discussed this before, is like a step in his evolution. Um, he's long since cast away any rosy illusions. Mm -hmm. uh, but I sensed in this book almost a transformation. Uh, Billy understood that trade-offs had to be made. Sometimes people, even people you know, people you love, could lose their lives uh, for an operation to be a success. But what I sense, though, is that before Billy was an observer or at most a casual participant in this deadly game, and now he's crossed an invisible line, and he started to play it along with the big boys and girls. Uh, and even one of the spy masters or spy mistresses, because there were women involved, tells him, you're one of us. Yeah. So is that sort of an accurate assessment of, of Billy's uh, arc, the, the arc of Billy's story. It is. And in, in that scene towards the end of the book, uh, somebody says to the spy master, he's one of us. And his, his comment, the spy master is, oh, a right bastard, is he? And I think that darkness has overcome Billy because of all he's seen and done. Um, and this, this gets into one of my pet peeves about mysteries and thrillers and that, uh, so many protagonists in series um, really don't, aren't affected that much by what they see and do. And I wanted to be sure in this series that um, the main character uh, suffered appropriately from the violence that he experiences and inflicts. Um, and that's why the last book ended the way it did. And this one, I, I hope he'll have a bit of a bounce back, but yeah, it's a, a, a point in time for him that uh, he's having to pay the price of everything he's seen and done. Um, but there's still that uh, kind of deal-making cleverness that uh, he's used in most of the books to get himself and his, his friends out of a uh, tight spot. So I, I hope he'll keep that as part of his personality. But I also thought uh, one of the reasons that there's no hesitation on Billy's part about going all in is that the stakes are getting higher. He's mm -hmm. finding out more and more. And, and 
the other the other side of this is Germany knows it's losing. That's mm-hmm. that's not a secret. Uh, Italy is is capitulated, and at least in the European theater, they're mm-hmm. kind of on their own. And there's almost nothing more dangerous than a foe with nothing to lose. Right. And and you know, Billy's a captain, which is which is a pretty high rank of officer. Um, but even he knows this, and certainly the people that he works with mm-hmm. know this. He's he's in General Eisenhower's office, and and this is there. Germany's gotten very very dangerous, and and so is I mean is that that's also an accurate assessment of where he is at the end of the Red Horse. Uh, yes, and uh, again, that's one of the plot points that we can't really talk about, but. Uh, the desperation of the Germans and the, the rats beginning to desert the ship um, is coming to bear. And that's something that he is going to have to deal with um, in future assignments, that it, it is going to get much more dangerous uh, because now it's not just a straight-on battle. It's a battle with people who know they have nothing to lose. So um, It's, yeah, because, one, it's asymmetrical. There's, there's, yeah. you know, there's no longer... Uh, as many battle lines. France has been liberated. Uh, The Allies are marching from the West and from the East. Mm -hmm. Which is where Billy goes next year. So next year's book is the Soviet Union. So he'll see a different side of the war there. You anticipated my my next and, and ordinarily my last question that Chronologically, we're getting to the end of the war, and and uh, you know Billy is gonna, but there's a lot of as you pointed out at the beginning of this discussion, there's a lot of war and a lot of stuff happens. And I might add that I, in my mind, <clears throat> uh, VE Day may have been in 1945, but the war really went on for about another 10 years. Uh, Vienna was divided until 1955, and I always thought. That would have been a fascinating, you know, if people think about Berlin, yeah. but it wasn't the only city that was right. divided. Vienna was, and it, you know, it gave birth to like uh, the third man and, and a lot of other, right. yeah. you know, spy stuff. Anyway, tell us what you can about uh, enough of my <laughs> rattling on. Tell me what you can about the next book. Well, this next book really came to be, I have to thank Reed Frail Coleman. Uh, for it because we were at a, a writer's conference um, and he said, you know, you really ought to send Billy to Russia. And I said, I, I wouldn't know how to do that. Uh, There's a whole language thing and how would I deal with that? But he planted the seed and uh, it took me a couple of years to come up with it. But um, in an earlier book, I uh, can't recall which one, but uh, Billy uh, and Kaz ran into uh, an Air Force officer who was planning shuttle bombing missions to Russia. So we had actually had air bases in Russia, and uh, the Russians were very paranoid about it. You know, they wanted us to do the bombing, but not to leave the base. And I thought it would be interesting to um, have Billy forced into uh, a investigation of a murder of uh, a Soviet security officer and an American officer. Uh, so he is brought in to do. Uh, a joint investigation with the Russians who have told him that the, the culprit will be an American. There's no way it's going to be a, a Russian. So 
he has to deal with that. Uh, and of course, the easiest way to get to uh, a, this base from which they conduct bombing runs is to go on a bombing run. So the book starts off with uh, Billy and Big Mike uh, in two, each in a separate B-17. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to try to describe what that was like. Um, and there's a magnificent documentary called The Cold Blue, meaning the cold blue sky. Uh, and it's all actual color footage of um, what it was like to be on those uh, bombing missions uh, at altitudes so high that your breath would freeze and ice crystals would form on your oxygen mask. But really uh, unbelievable conditions in open air B-17s that the gun ports had to be open, um, minus 60 degrees below zero, uh, all the while the Germans are trying to kill you. Um, So uh, just getting there is a a challenge. Uh, But then also the the paranoia of the Russians and what that experience was like um, made for an interesting plot. Uh, And I also got to... uh, Right in, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Night Witches. There's been a few books written about them. But the Russian Air Force had women pilots, fighter pilots, bomber pilots, but they also had a unit that flew old, antiquated biplanes, and they would fly at night over the German positions and drop bombs. And they were called Night Witches because they would cut their engines and glide in, drop their bombs, and silently uh, fly away. Uh, and it was really psychological warfare because they weren't that effective militarily, but they would keep the Germans up all night waiting for uh, the attack of the night witches. Um, so really, of course, I, I had to figure out a way to get him in one of those aircraft, and I managed to do that. So it was, uh, it was very interesting to both write in the experience of the common Russian soldier or uh, uh, air person, and then the, the higher-ups, the NKBD, the security forces, and how crazily paranoid uh, they were. So once again, we, we have some uh, modern-day similarities there. But anyway. I love that about the night witches. That's, uh, that's uh, amazing. I, can't, uh, I, I, I can never wait to read your next book. <laughs> but uh, this, this, uh, we can all thank Reed Farrell Coleman for this and many other things. Right. But uh, this is a great one. And the title is Road of Bones. And it comes from a road that was constructed by political prisoners in Siberia. Uh, hundreds of thousands of them died. And the the ground was so frozen that the only place to bury the bodies was in the roadbed that they were building. So you can still, you can today, you can drive on this highway in Siberia, and the roadbed is filled with the bodies of hundreds of thousands of political prisoners. Road of bones. Grizzly. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that cheery note. <laughs> Uh, another cheery note. Uh, we should say that even though this, these stories, uh, the underpinnings are, they couldn't be more serious. And yet, like humans everywhere, there is humor, there's lo- some lightness, there's camaraderie, and there's love in your books. And that's one of the things 
I think, that draws people to Billy and Kaz and Big Mike <clears throat> and even Colonel Harding, mm-hmm. who's kind of a hard ass, is, is that there's, a, there's a, the whole panoply. There's everything there. I think people cleave to that sort of relationship as something to hold on to, that we can get through this if we have each other and people you can depend on. And I think that's part of the attraction uh, to these characters, is they depend on each other. They get in fights. They they don't always get along. um, But in the end, um, they're always there for each other. That's a good lesson. You know, something uh, Denise uh, Mina said to me in, in our interview earlier this, this month was, this is temporary. And I, you know, sometimes I have to tell myself that. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I can't wait to read her new book. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. You know, like everything that she touches, uh, you know, you guys are in a, um, just a very exclusive club of, of people who write amazing characters that are relatable and, and the stories are engaging. And, uh, and even when we have more distractions mm-hmm. than we do right now, uh, books that take us away. Mm-hmm. And that's a, wonderful, um, that's a wonderful gift that you give to your readers. So I appreciate, as, you know, because it's all about me, <laughs> thank you for doing that. You're quite well. And thank you for joining us again. And I look forward uh, to talking to you next year. If you could get me on the dance card um, to talk about Road of Bones. Okay. I'll be there. Thank you. All right. uh, Talk to you next year. Okay. (laughs) 